Welcome to the new studio. You are listening to an hour of your life. Steve doesn't like it when I talk over the music. Oh, I'm just waiting for you to give your name. My name's Kim. I don't like when you do things different like this. Whatever. And I am Steve. And we're in the new studio. Yeah, which means we've moved out of the bedroom and down into the studio. Yeah, we have which a, we've set up in the basement now. Yeah, so it's like a studio office. So it's like a half studio, half office, and all of our friends are down here. Jules and Vincent, the mice are down here, and Bubba's down here. Harambe's over there. We Steve let me get a brand new fake tree for the corner. Yep, I permitted you. Yes, you, you may now dialogue. You did. It looks super fake, but that just adds to uh, the kitsch that is our studio. Ramona's down here. I just had her out. She's gave me some hugs. Well, so. It's been a crazy week this week. There's been a lot of stuff going on today. Just today, the mayor of Dayton said that you have to wear a mask out in public, um, which as a the manager of a massage studio presents some complications for us, but we're getting there. But we don't have a lot of time to recap everything that's been going on in the world this week because we have a lot to cover on the show today. We will be lucky if we get done in an hour. And I've, I've just got to say, we thought this would be a really good idea to <laughs> to do... You don't think it's a good idea anymore? No, I do. I think the topic was great, but this has been a really, really a lot of work to put together what we hope has been a quality... What I hope has been quality episodes because there has just been so much stuff that we have had to do and guys, I want to, to interrupt to put here this together. because Steve keeps saying the word we. Um, that's not accurate. Frankly, Steve has done all of the work. Um, he has done all of the research for the last, what, two episodes, three episodes? Three. All, all of the Revolutionary War stuff. That was all Steve. Um, between a new work schedule and school, I just haven't been able to. Um, and so thank you so, so much. Can you push that button over there, the yay button? Because <laughs> I can't reach it. That is not a yay button. That is the crowd here in the live studio audience. Okay, but the button says yay. So, yeah, okay. so thank you so much. Oh, also yesterday was our anniversary. Yep. Happy 16th wedding anniversary. All righty. All right, let's get so, let's get into the into the Revolutionary War. So, like I said, it has been a lot of fun, but it has been it has taken a lot more time to research and put these episodes together than I even imagined it was going to take. So, and that's why it is now Thursday night, and we're just getting this show out. I have no out. idea what day of the week it is. Um, so hopefully, uh, so I am going, I said that I would do the ne- the research for the next episode um, because it's over one of my favorite, favorite people in history. So hopefully I can figure out when to do it and get it out before the end of the week. Monday. Oh, we yeah, we we've, we've got to put it out by money. But let's get okay, on with anyway. the show. Yeah. So where we left off last week was the signing. Well, this episode is about nation building. So we've yeah. we've covered pre-revolution. It took two episodes to cover that, and then it, we we managed to cram in the entire Revolutionary War into one episode. One episode. And we have to get in the post-revolution or the building of the nation in. 
one episode. It's hard to make a country. Harder it is. Than you would think. So we left off last week with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, officially ending the American Revolution. The war was fought, the Americans won, and they defeated the British. The Brits went on back to England with their tail tucked between their legs. The Patriots met and solidified, solidified the government. They wrote the Constitution, and everything went just perfect because unlike today, all those politicians, they agreed on everything. And then they all lived happily ever after. Really? No, they didn't. <laughs> That's not the way <laughs> that, it went? That, that is not the way it happened. <laughs> it it kind of happened, but it, they Ooh. didn't all agree on everything. <laughs> so this is kind of like what happened, but there is a whole lot between the lines. Yeah. If you think politics today are crazy, we're going to take a little trip back to the late 1700s. And actually, we're going to move up into the 1800s on this. And... Uh, discuss and talk about and hopefully educate some about what it was like to form a nation. So spoiler alert, it's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> it's hard. So let's start this week's episode off with a little review of the past couple episodes. No, like an actual review, not the yeah, not, not the not, fake one that you, yeah. you just gave. So the Americans were ruled by Great Britain. This is obviously uh, pre-revolution. They didn't like this, and they always had an independent spirit about mm -hmm. them. So then the French and Indian War was fought, and if you want to find out why, you're going to have to go back and listen to the episode because we don't have time to go back in and rehash all that. But the French and Indian War cost Great Britain a lot of money. To pay for the war, the king started taxing the colonists. And... Um, they basically felt like this was taxation with no representation, and that wasn't a popular thing about them, and the colonists began to push back. Great Britain levied more taxes on them. Obviously, it, when you're pushing back against taxes, that's the natural inclination. Let's give them more. Yeah. The Americans pushed harder until we heard the shot heard around the world, and that started the armed conflict, or what we call the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War was fought with the assistance from France, and they helped defeat Great Britain, and uh, that's pretty much how it went up until then. Now, So why did we spend three episodes covering all of that if you just covered it in 30 seconds? Well, we just had to. But that brings us up to this week's episode, the aftermath of the American Revolution and the building of a nation. This episode will cover post-Revolutionary War and a lot on, we're going to spend a lot of time on the making of the Constitution, the writing of the Constitution. It's going to take us up to the War of 1812, which it sounds like a lot of history, but the, the nation was still being developed and a lot of things had to be tried and tested to get us there. But we're going to stop at 1812. And maybe uh, by this time, the nation was still very young, but it, it was established. And maybe one day we will go into. Um, yeah, the, the War, War of 1812 and on up to the Civil War. Because yeah. honestly, I don't ever remember studying the War of 1812 in school. Like, I know nothing about it. Um, so I would love to cover the War of 1812. Now, like we said, this might go over an hour. We are going to... Uh, so the goal was to do all of the pre-revolutionary stuff leading up to the 4th of July, Independence Day, obviously, here in the States. Um, and so we're going to go through this. It might be more than an hour. And if it is, you know what? That's okay because we've been kind of putting out episodes late. So consider it bonus content and an apology for late episodes. 
Um, but we're going to go. We're going to get through all of it. It's going to be a single show. Uh, so buckle your seatbelts. I already said that. I, I'm just reminding them. Well, all righty then. So, as a result of the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War, the United States was recognized by Great Britain as an independent nation. That had to sting a little. I'm sure it did. But because of this, the British ceded a large amount of territory in what we now call the Midwest, so the American Midwest, which is basically everything between the original 12 colonies on the east coast of the United States and the Mississippi River. Even with the treaty, though, the British violated a lot of the treaty because they kept a lot of forts, a series of forts, in that territory, and those forts would not be removed until the War of 1812. It's pretty gutsy. Yeah, well, I guess they thought there was nothing we could do about it. <laughs> so the successful yeah. revolution against England gave the American people a seat. What it did, it gave, it gave us a seat at the table with the rest of the world. It gave us a changed social order in which um, privilege counted for little. It united all the new Americans with memories of a mutual hope and a common struggle. So it, it kind of bonded everybody mm -hmm. because it was still so fresh. But mostly it gave them the challenge to prove that they had the ability to self-govern themselves and to be a part of the international community. The success of the revolution gave Americans the opportunity to give legal form and the expression of their political ideals as laid out in the Declaration of Independence and to remedy some of the grievances through the state constitutions. So as James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, wrote, nothing has excited more admiration than the manner in which free governments have been established in America. For it was the first instance that free inhabitants have been uh, have been seen deliberating on a form of government and selecting such of their citizens as possessed their confidence to determine upon and give effect to it. Man, those guys. <laughs> it's hard reading I know. these quotes because of the way they talk. I just don't talk like that. No, you don't. So the written constitution was developed in America and is among the earliest in history. John Adams wrote, in all free states, the constitution is final. And um, so Americans everywhere demanded, quote, a standing law to live by. So naturally, the first object of the framers was to secure those unalienable rights, the violation of which had caused them to sever their connection with England. So while the 13 original colonies were being transformed into states and adjusting themselves to the conditions of independence, some new commonwealths were developing in the huge area of land west of the seaboard settlements. So out west was the finest hunting and the richest land that had been yet found in the country, and so pioneers poured out of the Appalachian Mountains out west. And by 1790, the popula population of the Trans-Appalachian region was well over 120,000. That's a lot of people for back then. That is a lot of people for back then, and they just all went west, and they're going to continue expanding west over the next several generations. So at the end of the war, the United States had inherited the unsolved question, the problem of empire, with had complications of land, fur trade, Indian settlement, and government of dependencies, so a new colonial policy based on the principle of equality was inaugurated. 
This new policy squashed the time-honored thought that colonies existed for the benefit of the mother country and they were politically subordinate and socially inferior. Yeah. Britain at that point was kind of like the new Rome. Wherever they landed, they claimed and said, this is ours and you exist only to serve us. Um, And America was like, "Mm, nope, I don't think so. Our founders believed that the colonies were the extension of the nation and they were entitled, not as a privilege, but as a right to all the benefits of equality. So the provisions of the ordinance laid the permanent foundations for the American territorial system and colonial policy, and it enabled the United States to keep expanding westward all the way to the Pacific Ocean and to develop from 13 colonies to 48 states with relatively little difficulty. And because of that, we have the Beach Boys. Because they're from California. Theoretically, Charles Manson, too. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So all this was done under the Articles of Confederation, which we talked about last week or in earlier episodes. The problem was, unfortunately, with the Articles of Confederation, that they they just didn't work out. They were disappointing. The biggest shortcoming with the Articles of Confederation was their failure to provide a real national government for the 13 states which have been tending strongly towards unification since their delegates first met in 1774 to protect their liberties against the British Empire that was encroaching on them. But they also discovered with the revolution that mutual aid between the states was a good thing, and the fear of giving up individual authority in some areas had, to and large degree, had been lessened. It was also obvious that the national government should have had the power to lay whatever tariffs were necessary and to regulate commerce, but it didn't. So the Articles of Confederation, while you know they were a good start... It's like they, a rough draft they, of the yeah, nation. They, it just wasn't sufficient to run an entire nation. Right. Okay, so they also said you know it should have had the authority to levy taxes for national purposes, but again, the Articles of Confederation didn't do that. It should also have had sole control of international relations, but a number of states have begun their own negotiations with foreign nations. Nine states had organized their own armies, and several had their own little navies. Hmm. Yeah, there there was just a hodgepodge of coins minted by a a dozen foreign nations and a, a whole lot of variety of state and national paper bills all quickly were depreciating in value. Yeah, so they're not it, really it, worth it just more than the paper they're printed on. Like, yeah, it's really. Just, it just it just wasn't working. And yeah. you know, I guess so the Articles of Confederation under British rule, because there was still that semblance of a government to yeah. control some of these things, but if you're forming your own nation... You, you need was, a little bit more in-depth. It wasn't enough to do that. Right. Okay, so they also had economic difficulties following the war, which caused discontent, especially amongst the farmers. Farm produced, uh, farm produce tended to be in a glut on the market, and general unrest centered chiefly among the farm debtors who wanted strong ways to ensure uh, against foreclosure of their mortgages on their property and to avoid imprisonment for debt. So, you know, they used to have debtors' prison. Mm-hmm. Okay, so courts were clogged with lawsuits for debt. All through the summer of 1786, popular conventions and informal gatherings in several states demanded reform in the new state administration. So the states are kind of like, yeah, this isn't working. We got to get this 
We got to we got to organize some stuff here. Yeah, and a lot of farmers who were facing debtor's prison and the loss of farms that had been in their family for generations because remember, America as a as a nation is new, but America as a people body is not new. It's been around for a couple generations. So some farmers actually resorted to violence um, because they were afraid of losing their farms. In the autumn of 1786, Massachusetts had mobs of farmers under the leadership of a former army captain named Daniel Shea. Uh, Daniel Shays, I'm sorry. Yeah, they started. The farmers started to forcibly prevent the county courts from sitting and to prevent further judgments for debt pending the next state election. They were met with serious resistance from the state government, and for a few days, there was danger that the state house in Boston would be besieged by an infuriated crowd. So, like, think literal torches and pitchforks. That's what they had to work with. But the rebels ended up being turned back by the militia, and the farmers scattered into the hills. And only after the uprising was crushed did the legislature consider the justice of the grievances which had caused it and take steps to remedy them. So... I'm not advocating violence and I'm not advocating protesting necessarily, but they, these farmers protested and the governing body heard them and then they took steps to remedy the situation. Now at this time, George Washington wrote that the states were united only by quote, a rope of sand and the prestige of the Congress. I had guess that means not, not a lot. <laughs> and the prestige of the Congress had fallen to a really low point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Disputes between Maryland and Virginia over navigation and the Potomac River. Imagine people not thinking a lot about Congress. Can you imagine? Okay. All right. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> Disputes between Maryland and Virginia over navigation and the Potomac River led to a conference of representatives of five states at Annapolis in 1786. So there's a lot of infighting at this point. Now, one of these delegates was a guy that you may have heard of. His name is Alexander Hamilton. He convinced his colleagues that commerce was too much bound up with other questions and that the situation was too serious to be dealt with by such an unrepresentative body. So, in other words, we need something a little more substantial. So, Hamilton created a gathering to call upon the states to appoint representatives a of the gathering. United States. A gathering to appoint representatives of the United States and to, quote, devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the union. The Continental Congress was at first mad over this bold step, but its protests were cut short by the news that Virginia had elected George Washington a delegate, and during the next fall and winter, elections were held in all the states but Rhode Island. So it was a gathering of really notable guys that assembled as the first federal convention in the Philadelphia State House in May 1787, and the state legislatures sent leaders with experience in colonial and state governments in Congress, on the bench, and in the field. Well, so George Washington was looked at as the outstanding citizen in the entire country because of his military leadership during the Revolution. Also, because of his integrity and reputation, he was chosen to preside over this, how do you say, gathering? Mm-hmm. <laughs> over this gathering. And then you had the old sage wise Benjamin Franklin, who <laughs> we're going to hear about more about next week, <laughs> who was now 81 years old. And like a lot of guys up there, he'd mellowed in his years. Mm-hmm. So he let the younger guys, he let the younger guys do most of the talking and the bickering. 
but his humor and his wide experience in diplomacy helped ease some of the difficulties among the delegates because you know things were tense. Oh, there you was think? arguing and stuff like that. They're so. arguing over the Potomac River. Yeah, well, I, I can picture Benjamin Franklin just sitting back. Oh my gosh, and I just love. watching this and taking it all in, and then Ugh. making a joke to uh, my to, dude Ben to, to cut to cut the tension. Yeah. Prominent among the more active members was Governor Morris, able and daring, who clearly saw the need for a national government. Also in his camp, this camp, was James Wilson, also of Pennsylvania, who worked hard for the national idea. From Virginia came James Madison, and you know most of these names... You'll know these guys. You, you should have heard these names. Yep. So James Madison, who was a practical young statesman, and uh, he studied... Politics, and he knew a lot about politics and history. And according to a colleague from a, quote, from a spirit of industry and application, the best informed man on any point in the debate. Massachusetts sent Rufus King and Elbridge Jerry, um, both young men of ability and experience. Roger Sherman, a shoemaker turned judge, was one of the representatives from Connecticut from New York came Alexander Hamilton, who had just turned 30 years old and was already well-known and respected amongst his peers. One of the few well-known patriots of colonial America absent was Thomas Jefferson, who was in France on a mission of state at this time. So the 55 delegates were relatively young, with the average age being 42. So they're considering 42 of being relatively young. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. I mean, you got to be 36 to be elected president. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, except old Ben, he was 81. Yeah. So the convention He's had been student. authorized only to draft amendments to the Articles of Confederation. But as Madison later wrote, <laughs> the delegates, again, here's a quote, with a manly confidence in their country, <laughs> simply threw the articles aside and went ahead with the thought of creating a whole new form of government. And this is where we get the term of the great American experiment. Yep. And with their work, the delegates recognized that the predominant need was to reconcile two different powers, the power of local control, which was already being exercised by the 13 semi-independent states, and the power of a central government. They adopted the principle that the functions of and powers of the national government being new, general, and inclusive had to be carefully defined and stated, while all other functions and powers were to be understood as belonging to the states. So this is like a whole new concept in the world that this is happening right now. Which is odd because now we kind of take it for granted. Yeah, and so we're kind of seeing this right now with the COVID pandemic. There are things the national government has done like limit... Uh, and ban travel from overseas, but the manage, managing of the pandemic has mostly been done by state governments. In many cases, some of these uh, state governments have even delegated this down to local governments. And you know, the example I can give here in Ohio, schools are our best example. The state of Ohio issued guidelines, and um, the standards then were delegated down to impl implementation by the local districts. Now, Personally, I like this. Here in our little neck of the world, we don't need Uncle Sam to tell us, you know, us local folks how to do things. And we kind of feel like here that our local people know better how to the conditions, you know, in our 
county and our districts and how to best meet the needs and can ta- tailor those needs to what we need. Yeah, it's I'm, interesting to me. Like, I am a staunch constitutionalist. I totally believe in states' rights, minimal federal government. However, I will say in some things, and COVID is a great example, um, legalization of marijuana is another good example. I feel like it would be a lot easier if it was federalized because... Well, marijuana is a federal issue. I mean, if you... Uh, great that if states, individual states want to, for example, we'll just do marijuana. If states want to legalize it individually, but then how do you, um, it just seems like because it would be much easier. Because it's on a federal easier. register as a. Right. It just seems like yeah. it would be much easier to regulate at the federal level and much easier to control. Same with COVID. I mean, I know COVID is something way different, but it seems like um, it just everybody needs to get on the same page. Yeah. Well, I like local government. I do too. Yeah. But thankfully, our founding fathers saw the need for national powers. They recognized the necessity of giving the national government real power and thus generally accepted the fact that the national government should be empowered, among other things, to do things like to make money, to regulate commerce, to declare war, to make peace. These functions are necessary and called for the making of a national government. And I think the intent was push as much down to the state and local governments as absolutely possible. Yeah. But there's a need for federal stuff. Oh, yeah, especially in trade. Like, you have to have national money. So the 18th century statesmen who met in Philadelphia were adherents of a guy by the name of Montesquieu. Um, (laughs) I'm glad I didn't have to say that one. (laughs) His concept was the balance of power in politics. So essentially the idea is that there's two types of power. There's sovereign power and administrative power. And um, he believed that the two should be kept separate. And this principle was kind of naturally supported by the colonial experience. So this influence led to the understanding that there are three distinct branches of government that needed to be established, each equal and coordinate with the others. There's the legislative, executive, and judicial powers, and they were, they, you know, the guys thought, the founding fathers said that they should be adjusted and interlocked in such a way to keep the peace. And it was also... Um, to be so well-balanced that no int- one interest could ever gain control. So the balance of powers that we still have today. It was natural for the delegates to assume that the legislative branch, like the colonial legislatures and the British Parliament, should consist of two houses. So on these broad general views, there was agreement, but there were some really sharp differences about the way that we would achieve those desired ends. Um, So representatives of the small states, like New Jersey, objected to the changes that would reduce their influence in the federal government by basing representation upon population instead of upon statehood, like the Articles of Confederation had said. But on the other hand, representatives from big states like Virginia argued that they should have proportionate representation. So the debate threatened to go on endlessly over this question until finally the Connecticut delegate came forward with some pretty solid arguments in support of a plan for representation in proportion to the population of the states in one House of Congress and equal representation in the other. So the alignment of large against small states dissolved. And almost every succeeding question, though, raise new alignments to be resolved only by new compromises. So there was a lot of bickering in these early days, a lot of back and forth, probably a lot of spirited 
I don't even want to call it debate. There was probably a lot of fighting. (laughs) I bet. Certain members didn't want any branch of the federal government to be elected directly by the people. Others thought it had to be given as broad a basis as possible. And the list goes on. Yeah. So just to clarify for any, you know, for listeners that we have overseas, when we talk about the legislative, administrative, and the legal branch, and maybe for some of our American friends who didn't pay a lot of attention in school. So when we talk about the administrative branch, we're talking about the president. Yes. When we're talking about legislative branch, we're talking about Congress and Senate. And when we talk about legal, we're talking about the courts. The Supreme Court, yep. Well, the courts in general. In, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. So th- there's your your lesson. <laughs> yep, okay. there it is. Yeah, not, not, trying to talk, not trying to talk down, but, you know, maybe some of the people in... You know, we do have listeners overseas. Yeah, I don't know overseas. how Parliament works. Yeah, yeah. so. I should, Just but to I help don't. clarify that. Yeah. So, some delegates wanted to exclude the growing West from the opportunity of gaining statehood, while others welcomed the equality in principle. Um, they established the Ordinance of 1787. There was no serious def, uh, difference of opinion on such national economic questions as paper, money, Tender laws and laws impairing the obligation of contracts. So the boring stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I bet they thought impairing the obligation of contracts would uh, prevent fraud and corruption, hmm. you think? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there was a real need to balance the distinct um, sectionally economic interest for settling heated arguments as to the powers and the term and selection of the executive and for solving the problems concerning the tenure of judges and the kind of courts to be established. We still have these problems. Yeah, there, this, There's no term limits on Congress, for those of you who are overseas. Congress men, women, can be elected forever. As long as they're alive. Yep. And Supreme Sup- Court justices are appointed until they die or they resign. Yep, so we president, still have this problem. President gets two terms. Yep, of four years each. Yep. Th- this was a lot of work, and how complicated this had to be. And the cool thing is it's still evolving. Yeah. Well, well, we'll talk about that. Yep. Deliberately and with determination through a hot Philadelphia summer, kind of like Ugh. a hot summer we're about to experience in Ohio, the convention met and they worked and they ironed out these issues. They finally achieved a satisfactory draft, which incorporated, um, in brief, the document organization of the most complex government ever designed by man to date. It is pretty complicated. Yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> a government supreme within its scope, but within a sphere that is defined and limited. As the Tenth Amendment made clear in 1791, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. And the supremacy of federal laws is limited to such, here, and I'm quoting, shall be made in pursuance of the Constitution. So in other words, this if the Constitution doesn't give you a power, assume that it's a state responsibility. Or an individual. Right. Right. Or, yep. Per, yep. Yes. So it's, it's an amazing document then, and it still is an amazing document. These guys had like wisdom and vision. What's even more amazing to me is they all got together and they worked this out. Maybe it was because they just fought the revolution and they had this common interest in this bond that they were 
all still feeling. Yeah. But whatever. I, I have a hard time personally imagining our current politicians oh, no. getting together and trying to put the Constitution as we know it together right now. Yeah. I, I don't think they could do it. I don't think they could either. The states, according to the Constitution, the states are co-equally supreme within their sphere. In no legal sense are they subordinate institutions, and both the federal and state governments rest on the same broad foundation of popular sovereignty. And again, I don't think they could do this today. With this political, anti-pro, whatever, whatever, they don't, I don't think we could go for this. States yeah, we, are not subordinate to It doesn't seem like we the, see a lot of compromise. It's either no. my way or the highway in... Yeah. We'll shut the government down unless you do it exactly the way I want to do it. Yep. Now, it, like you kind of just said, in subsequent years, the scope of federal power has been widely extended by amendment, implication, judicial interpretation, and the necessities of national crisis. However, the same is true of the states. Even in the 20th century, the American citizen comes far more frequently into con it's not the 20th century 21st century comes far more frequently into contact with the state than with the national government so even though the national government has way expanded its reach generally on a day-to-day basis the laws that you're going to encounter are state laws not federal laws the fbi is not going to give you a ticket for speeding um, yeah so Uh, For the states to belong, not by virtue of the federal constitution, but of their own sovereign power, they needed the control of municipal and local government, the police power, factory and labor legislation, the chartering of corporations, the statutory development and judicial administration of civil and criminal law, the control of education, and the general supervision of the people's health, safety, and welfare. Now, again, those lines sometimes get blurred, especially with the people's health, safety, and welfare these days. But generally speaking, that's a national thing, or a a state thing. In conferring powers, the convention freely and fully gave the federal government the power to lay taxes, to borrow money, to lay uniform duties, imposts, and excises. Now, I don't know what that means, Steve. Can you please explain it to me? Well, it means that the the federal government can, just like they did with the... um, with, with the uh, what do you call it the, the economic boost that they just gave us yeah. they were able to vote and you know so it's, can, not, it's not like they had 21 trillion dollars just laying around, laying around under the mattress two, two trillion dollars so they were authorized to we can help out the states yeah and you know in this one they didn't even borrow the money because the money wasn't there to exist. borrow they just, yeah, they just they went just, into debt just go print up so <laughs> make some more it's fine print up another two trillion and give me another check okay so, The federal government was given authority to coin money, fix weights and measures, way to go, guys, not picking the metric system, grant patents and copyrights, and establish post offices and post roads. And we're going to talk a little bit about the post office next week. Um, Federal government was empowered to to raise and maintain an army and a navy, and it could regulate interstate commerce. It was given the whole management of Indian relations, international relations, and of war. Um, And maybe someday we'll talk about those... uh, Native American Indian regulations, uh, because that, you know, study about that too. Uh, The federal government could pass laws for naturalizing foreigners and controlling the public lands. It could admit new states on a basis of absolute equality with the old, which is why we love Alaska and Hawaii just as much as we love Massachusetts. 
Well, I mean, we, we loved the next 37 states that came in because there was only 13 to begin with. Well, yeah, but they're the, they're the baby states. We love them as much as the older states. Um, the federal government had the power to pass all necessary and proper laws for executing these defined powers, um, and that made the government flexible enough to meet the needs of later generations and of a greatly expand, expanded political body that we have today. So in constructing this frame of government, practically every feature showed the influence of the unwritten constitution of the British Empire, but also there's hardly a clause which can't be traced to the constitution of one of the 13 American states or to just plain old colonial practice. Well, the principle of separation of powers that familiar in most colonial governments had already been tested in most of the state constitutions and it it worked. So so it's okay that we yeah. borrowed a little bit from the gov- from the British and then threw our own mix into it cuz yeah. we had already figured out that it worked. Yeah, and yeah, or we could improve on the system that was there. And so the convention set up a governmental system in which there was separate legislative, legislative, executive, and judiciary branch, each checked by the others, which you talked about. Congressional enactment did not become law until approved by the president. And the president was to submit the most important of his appointments and all of his treaties to the Senate for confirmation, and we still do this. He, in turn, might be impeached and removed by Congress. The judiciary judiciary (laughs) was to hear all cases arising under the laws of the Constitution. The courts were therefore, in effect, empowered to interpret both the fundamental and the statute of the law. So it's kind of like the intent and the exact letter of the law. Mm. But... um, the courts appointed by the president. See, I didn't say that word. I just changed it to court. The judiciary. Yeah, the judiciary <laughs> appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate might also be impeached by Congress. Uh, they foresaw the possibility for future necessity for changing or adding to the new document. The convention included an article which delineate, delineated specific methods for its amendment. Now, These guys were so smart. This makes the Constitution a living and breathing document. There's no way that these guys back in 1787 could have envisioned having to make laws concerning like the Internet. There's just no way yeah. they could have even comprehended that. But thank goodness they had the vision to understand that things would happen that they couldn't even contemplate. It, it reminds me of, I worked for a general one time. In in a meeting, this the colonel made some sort of statement that the general was proposing something, and this colonel said, "That's impossible. It can't be done." And then what the general said next has stuck with me ever since. He he told that colonel, he said, "With an attitude like that, we never would have put men on the moon." And that has always stuck with me. That yeah, we can do it. Don't say it can't be done. Figure out a way to get it done. If if we put our mind to it, we can do it. And that's. That is what reminds me here with what what they're doing with trying to make this Constitution, the right Constitution. However, to protect the Constitution from indiscriminate alteration, just like willy-nilly, whatever, they included Article 5, which has only been used successfully 27 times. So there's only 27 amendments to the United States Constitution. That's not a lot. What is Article 5? Article 5 states that either two-thirds of both houses of Congress and 
or two-thirds of the states meeting in convention may propose amendments to the Constitution. That's kind of a lot. Two-thirds, especially in today's political climate, getting two-thirds of anybody to agree on anything is nearly impossible. And it was designed like that, so they just couldn't do what like what they call the nuclear option and just like well 51% will do it so like whichever party just happens to be in yeah. charge at the time so again a lot of wise forethought to make this happen the proposals became law by one of two methods either by ratification by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states or by convention in three-fourths of these states so you know it had to be proposed accepted by two-thirds and then three-fourths of the people of, of these bodies had to approve it. Uh, Congress proposed which method shall be used. So it's it's up to Congress how they will do this. So complicated. Yeah. American politics is crazy hard. Yeah. Finally, the convention faced the most important problem of all. How should the powers given to the new governments be enforced? Now, under the old Articles of Confederation, the national government had possessed on paper large but inadequate powers in these in practice though those powers really didn't amount to anything because the states didn't pay any attention to them Hmm. so what was to save the new government from meeting the same obstacle at first the delegates had just one answer force (laughs) but it was quickly seen that the application of force upon the states would destroy the union uh Hello, Civil War. As the discussion progressed, it was decided that the government should not act upon the states, but upon the people within the states. It was to legislate for and call upon the individual residents of the country. As the keystone of the Constitution, the convention adopted a brief but highly significant device. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution states that, quote, Congress shall have no power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper. Oh, I'm sorry. They have the power. They have the power. (laughs) Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers vested (laughs) by this Constitution and the government of the United States. Congress can make laws. Period. End of story. (laughs) Article, what is that, six? Article six of the Constitution says that, quote, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So in other words, what the Supreme Court says, that goes in the states. And so the laws of the United States became enforceable in the nation's own national courts through its own judges and marshals, and they were also enforceable in the state courts through state judges and state law officers. So at the end of 16 weeks of deliberation on September 17th, 1787, the Finnish constitution was signed, quote, by unanimous consent of the states present. The delegates were obviously impressed by the solemnity of the moment and Washington sat in grave meditation. But Ben Franklin relieved the tension by 
a characteristic Ben Franklin witism, pointing to the half sun painted in a brilliant gold on the back of Washington's chair. He remarked that artists had always found it difficult to distinguish between a rising and setting sun. I have often and often, he remarked, in the course of the session and in the vicissitudes vicissitudes of my hopes and fears yes i'm reading this <laughs> of my hopes and fears as to its issue looked at that behind the president without being able to tell whether it is rising or setting but now at length i have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun uh, have i mentioned how much i love ben franklin yes <laughs> the preamble is just as important as the rest of the Constitution. The whole document is well thought out and carefully worded. So the preamble of the United States Constitution goes, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish, just, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves, and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. As I said earlier, the Founding Fathers knew the Constitution would need to change with the times, and I think that phrase, in order to form a more perfect union, is very important to the United States. It, allowed, it allows the Constitution to adapt and to change to form a more perfect union. So if we didn't have this, examples would be the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. To me, that clause makes the Constitution the living document. If it was rigid, those changes could not have happened. Another little important tidbit, when a soldier enlists in the Army or the mil sailor in the military or in the, in the Navy, the oath that they take is sworn to the Constitution of the United States, not to the president or to a political party. And that has always meant a great deal to me. But let's let's get back to making of the Constitution. Yeah, here. and the president takes that same oath to support and defend the Constitution. Preserve. Preserve. Oh, he doesn't defend yep. it. He preserves it. Yep. Now, okay, so the convention was over. The members, quote, adjourned to the city tavern, dined together, and took a cordial leave of each other. But a big part of the struggle for a more perfect union was still to be faced because the consent of popularly elected state conventions was still required before the document could become effective. So the convention had decided that the Constitution would take effect as soon as it was approved by conventions in nine of the 13 states. By the end of 1787, three had ratified it, but then they wondered would six others? Because to a lot of people, the document seemed full of danger, like the strong central government that it set up tyrannizing them, oppressing them with heavy taxes, and dragging them into wars, which I can understand. They had were pretty war-weary at this time. But, and so those concerns brought into existence two parties, which are our forefathers of our two parties that we have now, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, those favoring a strong government and those who preferred a loose association of separate states. This controversy raged in the press, the legislature, the state conventions, impassioned arguments were on both sides, in October 1787... So when we say impassioned, we mean... Like, literally people, like, yelling at each other yeah. and, uh, like, houses divided. I mean, I'm talking super impassioned. But they still worked it out. They did. Now, in October of 1787, the first in a series of 85 essays arguing for ratification 
of the proposed U.S. Constitution to, why can't I say that word tonight? The proposed U.S. Constitution appeared in the Independent Journal under the pseudonym Publius. Address, say that again. Publius. Okay. Addressed to, quote, the people of the state of New York. The essays, now known as the Federalist Papers, were actually written by the statesmen Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, who were leading supporters of the Constitution and the strong national government it created. So we hear all the time about the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was just 85 essays that said, this Constitution is a good thing, y'all should agree to ratify it. Um, The Federalist Papers were published serially from 1787 to 88 in several New York newspapers, and the first 77 essays, including Madison's famous Federalist 10, appeared in book form in 1788. Those were just called the Federalists, and it's been called one of the most important political documents in U.S. history. So as a result of a particularly sharp contest in Massachusetts where farmers were discontent with what was still a new Bill of Rights being appended to the Constitution in the form of amendments. Other states soon recognized the importance of making additions to the Constitution and to the rights, which had previously been included in all of the state constitutions, and they were incorporated into the supreme law of the land, forming the first ten amendments of the the original constitutional document. These amendments have guaranteed to the citizens of the United States and other rights uh, the freedom of religion, uh, speech, the press, assembly, a militia instead of a standing army, and the right to trial by jury, speedy trials by the law of the land, and prohibition, prohibition. Of, prohibition of general <laughs> warrants. As a result of the adoption of the Bill of Rights, the wavering states soon came in support of the Constitution, which was finally adopted on June 21st, 1788. Now, here are the Bill of Rights, or the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Yes, and we'll kind of explain some of these as we go, because, again... The wording back then just wasn't like I would use. Yeah, okay. As you can tell, as we've been going through the episode this evening. So the First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. There's a lot packed into the First Amendment. Yeah, and so basically, the United States said with this amendment is, there will be no national religion, Mm -hmm. and this has kind of been interpreted over the years in a lot of different ways, and we're not going to get into that right now because it's super, super controversial. But basically that says there will be no national religion like the Church of England. Right. Or it also permits you to do... To express your religion freely. Freely, however you want to. Or abridging the freedom of the press. So we we can't... In one episode, we talked about the press is kind of like Mm -hmm. the fourth branch of government. So they can't stop the press. Or the right of the people. the, The people have the right to... Peaceably, peaceably assemble, assemble and to petition the government for changes. So, right. yep. but you know, peaceably whole, assemble. But the whole thing up till now, you know, they're they're fighting revolutions, well, throwing tea in the harbor. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess they went overboard on some things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Second Amendment: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. 
The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, this is hotly contested because what is a well-regulated militia? Has that changed with the time? But basically, this has been interpreted by the courts many times and over and over that the U.S. citizen has the right to own and possess firearms. Yes. Third Amendment. And this, the Third Amendment always kind of makes me giggle a little bit. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. This just... Pretty self-explanatory, so tell me why you giggle. It just makes me laugh because this, to me, is like solely about people being salty because British officers were making them like shack up. Like like the British officers were like, you have to put me up in your house. And people were salty about it. Could have happened during the War of 1812. Could have happened during the Civil War and then during other... Things anyway, I know it could, but it just the the specificity of this is clearly aimed at British soldiers always makes me kind of laugh okay. a little bit. Fourth Amendment. All right, Fourth Amendment: the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So the authorities have to have probable cause to search your person or your property. They have to prove to a judge that they have reasonable suspicion or probable cause, and it has to be in writing. And And it has to be specific. And it has to be specific. So they can't come into the house and say, I'm looking for... Um, uh, something big. I'm looking for a stolen couch and look inside the drawers inside your cabinets because right. obviously it can't fit there. So right. it has to be specific to what they're looking for. And this has been, a lot of things have been tossed out of court because of and this And that's right got to be part of the warrant too. Yeah. Like it's got to say in the warrant what they're looking, yeah. what they're allowed to search. Yeah. And But it also permits that if the cop sees something in plain sight, it gives the cop probable cause to to conduct a search. Yeah. So if he's in your house and you have looking for that stolen couch, but you have something illegal sitting out on the counter that shouldn't be there, then he has probable cause because he's there legally. Okay. All right. Fifth Amendment. (sighs) No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to twice be put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled by any or in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This I didn't is, realize how much was in the Fifth Amendment either, because you always hear people pleading the Fifth. Like this they is always, why we're allowed to plead the Fifth. You have the right to remain silent. Also, if you're found innocent in a trial, you can't be found. You can't be tried again for that. Now, this is a tricky one right there because yes, you can. You can be tried under different different jurisdiction, but. 
the lawyers will have a great time sorting all that out. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also interesting. I didn't realize this also covers due process. Yeah. Or not due process. Um, eminent domain. No, uh, sh- no, private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Right. So the government can't come in and say, I want your house for our purposes without giving you fair you know, a fair price for your house. Well, I've got a story about that, but I'll, we'll talk about Ooh. that one later when I work down at Xavier University. Okay. Okay. Um, so I didn't realize that the eminent domain was part of the Fifth Amendment. Good to know. The Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. They can't hold you indefinitely for a trial. You have the right to a, a lawyer appointed by the state, which we call a public defender. So basically, what we know as the Miranda rights come mm-hmm. from the Fifth and the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. That's where you know you have the right to remain silent. Yeah. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Right. You have the right to anything you say can be used against you in court of law. You have the right to an attorney present during mm-hmm. questioning. Do you have any questions? So we've all seen that on every cop show that's the out Sixth there. The Sixth Amendment, though, can be difficult for victims because that of that piece that says you have the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. So if you um, are the victim of, of say, an assault, you're the person who assaulted you has the right to face you in court, which yep. as the victim, that can be difficult, but I understand the point behind it. Okay. All right, Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20... The right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall otherwise be reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. So basically what this is saying, in a civil suit, you have the right to have a jury decide your fate. If, you know, if in a, the $20 limit, I admit I had to go to Google to look this up, that $20 thing is yeah. still the law. I was going to ask about that. Basically the value of the 20 you have to have whatever you're suing for has to be of more value than $20 to have a jury hear your case. So it's still there. Wow. I thought, I thought that would have like been up a little bit. Adjusted for inflation? Yeah, but it's not. It's still 20 bucks. But again, I mean, you have to have two-thirds and then three-fourths, so it's complicated. It's probably just as well. Just leave probably it at not worth. Probably not worth your time. Let's just leave it at 20 The Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail. Oh, interesting. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The bail piece is a very controversial thing right now because the judges can go through and they can set bail, and a lot of people say it's unfair to a poor population that can't afford the bail. And so some states, I think even New York now, has gone through and they're making changes to this. The Theoretically, cr- you would hope that a good elected judge would be compassionate and understanding enough to understand the financial hardship of the prisoner and set bail accordingly. I don't think it has anything to do with the accused ability to pay. It has to do with the severity of the crime and, oh. and, the, and the judge's opinion if they're going to show back up a court. 
which is why we have bell, mo- bell bondsmen and bounty yeah, hunters like dog and those guys that <laughs> go out and catch it. But typically, if you you only have to put up ten percent, so if the bond is set at a thousand dollars, you really only have to put up a hundred dollars. But if you have to put up a million, yeah, okay, you have to come up with that. But right. That's why they have bondsmen and why it's, dog has a job. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, the cruel and unusual punishment is used a lot right now in attempts to get clients out of the death penalty because they'll say... Yeah, no, I think that's always going to be... Yeah, hanging was <clears throat> cruel or unusual. And there's this is stuff that the courts have to go through. But clearly, as yeah. much as people want to, you can't torture a prisoner or a sp- suspect. <laughs> now, many people would like to see child molesters put to a yeah. slow and painful death However, the Constitution of the United States, no matter how much people would like to see that happen, the Constitution just won't allow it. I think, isn't there, like, they can they can choose chemical castration or something? It depends on the state. Yeah. And then did you know that Utah is the only state that still has a firing squad? I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration of the in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Basically, what the Ninth Amendment means in plain English, <laughs> 21st century English, means that any right not specifically spelled out by the Constitution belonging to the people, the rights of the people are not limited to what is written. It limits the power of federal government. I guess this is why people believe... Um, that being told to wear a mask is unconstitutional. <laughs> However, the Constitution, whether you want to hear this or not, the Constitution does provide for measures to be taken during public health. Believe it or not, the feds and the states do have the power to quarantine. They've done it before. Even our founding fathers issued quarantine orders because of smallpox back in the day. Hmm. So it's a lot of people in my personal opinion, spout off stuff that they want to believe. Do but your it just research and, and educate yourself. Yeah, you, you may not want to wear that mask. Because you don't like it doesn't mean it's so. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people want to be... I, I'm not going there. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, yeah, All right, not the 10th Amendment. But the Constitution gives state or gives the federal government the ability to do that. Whether you like it or not, okay. they can't. Okay, 10th Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So So, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so this country was designed so that the states and the people have the power, not the feds. Ever hear that old saying, all politics are local? Well, how all of this is interpreted often comes down to the courts. And I think... The Founding Fathers deliberately put ambiguity into the Constitution so that the courts could interpret, maybe based off time, maybe for whatever reason. There yeah. is a lot of ambiguity in in the Constitution, and that's what it comes down to the courts to decide. Now, this doesn't contradict my earlier statements. I think the Founding Fathers knew exactly what they intended and worded the Constitution deliberately the way it is. Maybe old Ben Franklin got a kick out of watching the people debate, and he said, "You know what? I think <laughs> I can see I, it. I'll, I'll, I'll let future people like uh, get a kick out of this." <laughs> yeah, I can see it. All right, now now that we've got the Ten Amendments established, the Congress of the Confederation arranged for the first presidential election, declared the new government would begin 
on March 4th, 1789 and quietly expired. One name was on everybody's lips for the new chief of state, and Washington was unanimously chosen president. On April 30th, 1789, he took the oath pledging to faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and to the best of his ability to, quote, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So now we have a new nation with a new government and a new leader, and the economic problems caused by the war were on their way to solution, and the country was growing steadily. Immigration from Europe came up in volume, good farms were to be had for small sums, labor was in strong demand, there was a really rich valley stretching from upper New York to Pennsylvania to Virginia, and it soon became a really great wheat-growing area. And although a lot of items were still homemade, manufacturing was also growing. Massachusetts and Rhode Island were laying the foundations for important textile industries. Connecticut was starting to turn out tinware and clocks. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania were producing paper, glass, and iron. Shipping had grown to such an extent that on the seas, the United States was second only to England. And before 1790, American ships were traveling to China to sell furs and bring back teas, spices, and silks. The main impulse of American energy, though, was westward still. New Englanders and Pennsylvanians were moving into Ohio. Virginians and Carolinians were heading for Kentucky and Tennessee. And I'm glad they came to Ohio. (laughs) I happen to love this state. Um... All along the Alleghenies, wagons fulls of immigrants were moving west into Kentucky. Um, you know, we, we picture like the Daniel Boone guys clad in their buckskin, the hunters and the pioneers with carts of furniture and seeds and their farm implements and, you know, their animals trail along, you know, the, oxen. The, their oxen, <laughs> you know, tied up behind their wagons. In many clearings, the frontier farmers came in, they settled down, they built their log cabins, and every year, more and more rafts and boats loaded with grain and salt and meat, potatoes, were were moved down the Ohio River and a lot of the tributaries down through the Ohio River to the Mississippi River to New Orleans, where they could be shipped around the world year by year. Western towns grew more and more important. Wild, wild animals, disease, and other perils and hardships had to be faced, but still tens of thousands of settlements moved and were started in into the, the American wilderness. The West always had an appeal to people. This was the condition, you know, and that may have been because some of the early explorers went out there and they came back with these tales of like the Great Plains, the deserts, the mountains, Rocky Mountains. Like they're beautiful yeah, out west. Yeah, and, so, and I think that may have had a lot to do with moving on out through there. Um, that was the condition of the country when George Washington took office. The new constitution at that time was only a blueprint of things to come. There was no history or anything to, yeah. to proof it or anything like that. And <laughs> we, you know, we didn't Hope. know if it was going to work. And a lot of people were still skeptical. Skeptical. Uh, the two parties formed during the period of ratification continued to be antagonistic. Mm. You know, they they fought. So much uh, has changed. Yeah, so much <laughs> has changed. The the Federalists were the party of strong central government, of rising business, and commercial interests. The Anti-Federalists were champions of state rights and farming and the the land. The new government had to create everything here from the start. There were no taxes coming in until a judiciary could be established. There was no means of law enforcement. 
The army was small. The Navy had actually even ceased to exist by this time. Yikes. But George Washington, being the wise person that he was, was essential to the nation at this time. The qualities that made him first um, the soldier in the revolution also made him the statesman in the newly organized country. A lot of people had a lot of respect for him, and Mm -hmm. it took someone of his stature to hold all this together to keep it from falling apart. He had the power of planning for a distant end and a capacity for taking, you know, all the crap that was thrown (laughs) on him and, and bear with it to make this. But he inspired a lot of respect, trust, and he had a directness rather than uh, just whatever, you know. Yeah, he wasn't real aloof. No, he he was there. Fortitude rather than flexibility and a great dignity and a reserve about him. I mean, he was a statesman. He, yeah. I guess he looked apart. What was he, like six foot four or he something like tall. that? He was tall. He was a tall guy. As well as he was shy, humility, and um, he had a lot of self-control. Now, the organization of the government was obviously no small task, so Congress quickly created the departments of the state and the treasury. That treasury is especially important. Washington appointed Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State and Alexander Hamilton, his aide during the Revolution, as Secretary of the Treasury. Now, simultaneously, the Congress established the federal judiciary, setting up not only a Supreme Court with one chief justice, um, the first one was John Jay, and five associate justices, but also three circuit courts and 13 district courts. In the first administration, both the Secretary of War and its Attorney General were also appointed. Now, since Washington generally preferred to make decisions only after talking to those men whose judgment he trusted, the American cabinet, which consisted of the heads of all the departments that Congress might create, came into existence, although it was not officially recognized by law until 1907. Now, just as revolutionary America had produced two commanding figures of worldwide renown in Washington and my dude Ben Franklin... The Young Republic also made famous two other brilliant men in Hamilton and Jefferson, whose reputations were to spread beyond the seas and be uh, sung about for years to come. Now, I think we do need to mention that Thomas Jefferson now, a lot of controversy about Thomas Jefferson and slaves. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now, it was not their sterling personal gifts, great though they were, which entitled these guys a place in history, but it was their representation of two powerful and indispensable forces in American life. Now, Alexander Hamilton tended toward a closer union and a stronger national government, while Thomas Jefferson leaned toward a more broad, freer democracy. So the keynote of Hamilton's public career was his love of efficiency, order, and organization, And in fact, the weaknesses and inefficiency that he saw from 1775 to 1789 explain his real impulse to serve the nation. He had really big plans and definite policies where others had kind of more cautious ideas and sort of vague principles. Yeah, so in response to the call of the House of Representatives for a plan for the adequate support of public credit, Hamilton laid down and supported principles not only of public economy as such, but of effective government. America must have credit for industrial development, commercial activity, and the operations of government. Many men wish to retract the national debt or pay only a part of it back. Hamilton, however, insisted upon the full repayment of the debt 
of the Union government and also upon a plan by which the federal government took over the unpaid debt of the states incurred in the aid of the revolution. So Alexander Hamilton was a guy who paid his debts. It's just like a Lannister. Always pays his debts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was a Game of Thrones reference. Okay. So he devised a a bank of the United States with the right to establish branches in different parts of the country. He sponsored a national mint. He argued in favor of tariffs based on the protection and principle in order to foster the development of national industries. These measures had an instant effect, placing the credit of the federal government on a firm foundation and giving revenues, giving it the revenues that it needed. They encouraged commerce and industry, thus creating a solid um, plan or structure of businessmen who stood fast behind the national government and were ready to resist any attempt to weaken it. Now, on the other hand, Thomas Jefferson was a man of thought rather than action. So if Alexander Hamilton's talents were executive, Thomas Jefferson's were more meditative and philosophical. And among contemporary political thinkers and writers, he was definitely a standout. Now, politically, obviously, he was frequently at odds with Hamilton. When he went abroad as minister to France, he realized the value of a strong central government in foreign relations, but he didn't want it strong in a lot of other respects, fearing that it would restrict individuals. He was born an aristocrat, but by inclination and conviction, he was a Democrat in favor of equality, and he always fought for freedom from the British crown, from church control, from a landed aristocracy, from inequalities of wealth. And Hamilton's great aim was to give the country a more efficient organization, but Jefferson's was to give individual men a wider liberty. He believed that, quote, every man and every body of men on earth possesses the right of self-government. Hamilton was afraid of anarchy and thought in terms of order. Jefferson was afraid of tyranny and thought in terms of liberty. And the United States really needed both of them. It required a stronger national government and also the unbinding of men. It was the country's good fortune that it had both men and could in time fuse and to a great extent reconcile their special contributions. Their differing points of view made manifest shortly after Jefferson took office as Secretary of State led to a new and profoundly important interpretation of the Constitution. Because when Hamilton brought forth his bill establishing a national bank, Jefferson objected, speaking for all believers in state rights as opposed to national rights and for those who feared great corporations. Jefferson said that the Constitution expressly enumerates all the powers belonging to the federal government and reserves all other powers to the states, Nowhere was it empowered to set up a bank. Hamilton contended that all the powers of the national government could not be set down in words because of the intolerable detail this would necessitate. A vast body of powers had to be implied by general causes, he said, and one of those authorized Congress to, quote, make all laws which should be necessary and proper for carrying out other powers specifically granted. The Constitution declared the national government should have the power to lay and collect taxes, pay debts, and borrow money, and a national bank would materially assist in carrying out those functions efficiently, and Congress was therefore entitled to set up the bank under its implied powers. Now, George Washington and the Congress accepted Hamilton's 
plan and established it as a precedent. Again, this goes back to, I think, when they wrote the Constitution, they left enough ambiguity in the wording to allow stuff like this to happen Mm -hmm. so that it could be debated and thought out and decided on. Again, I, I just can't imagine in our current political environment yeah. this happening. That, you know, such differences of opinion, but they were able to get together. We should all sit down and watch C-SPAN sometime because you can watch all of this now live in real time, like what they're doing now. (sighs) (laughs) I don't know. I've seen lately some pretty heated arguments about things. No. Okay. That's me and C-SPAN right there. You and C-SPAN. Okay. Okay, crickets. Okay, crickets. (laughs) Though its first task were to strengthen the domestic economy and make the union secure, the young America could not ignore the political happenings. There's a lot of stuff going on overseas. The cornerstone of Washington's foreign policy was the preservation of peace to give the country a time to recover from the Revolutionary War. And he he wanted a slow work of national integration to continue. He didn't want to rush into this. Because a lot of experimentation had to be done to see how it was oh, yeah. going to work, but things going on in Europe threatened, you know, his goal of you know of peace. Washington retired in 1797, firmly saying, "Nope, eight years, I'm done." Now that wasn't the law until Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected to five terms as president, and then after that, then it was changed to the president can only have. Two terms. Honestly, I don't know why you would want more. Uh, It's interesting. It's always fascinating to me to see presidents when they come in and presidents when they go out. They look old. They look so much older. John Adams was able and had a lot of high thoughts. He was stern and he was elected as the new president. But even before he entered the presidency, Adams had argued with Hamilton who had contributed so much to the previous administration. So Adams was handicapped by having a divided party behind him and a divided cabinet at his side. But that's what makes politics politics, I guess. Mm -hmm. Jefferson enjoyed the extraordinary power because of his appeal to the America's idealism, simplicity, and youth, and hopeful outlook. And in the manner in which he assumed the presidency in 1801, emphasized the fact that democracy had come into power. Jefferson... Uh, carelessly. Jefferson, I picture him as almost like a hippie-like figure. Well, he care, he garbed, carelessly garbed as usual, walked from his simple boarding house up the hill to Capitol Hill together with his friends, entertained the Senate chamber. He shook hands with the vice president, which was Aaron Burr, his rival in the recent election, and took the oath of office administered by John Marshall, recently appointed as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His inaugural address promised a wise and frugal government which should preserve order among the inhabitants but shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. One of Jefferson's steps doubled the area of the nation. Spain had long held the country west of the Mississippi with the port of New Orleans near its mouth. But soon after Jefferson came into office, Napoleon forced a weak Spanish government to cede the, that big track of land back to Louisiana, or called Louisiana, back to France. The moment he did so, Americans worried with the apprehension 
because New Orleans was a port that was so indispensable for the shipment of all our other products that was coming down the Ohio River and everywhere and going out through the port. Napoleon's plans for a huge colonial empire just west of the United States threatened the trading rights and the safety of all the interior settlements of the newly formed United States. Jefferson said that if France took possession of Louisiana, from that moment we must marry ourselves to the British fleet and to the nation, which you know, I don't think they were too keen on that happening right now. No. And that the first cannon shot fired in the European war would be a signal for the march of an Anglo-American army against New Orleans. Napoleon was impressed by the will of the United States that, and that England would strike. He knew that another war with Great Britain was possible after the brief peace that they had just settled. And then with that, what when it began, he would most likely lose Louisiana. So he resolved to fill his treasury to put Louisiana back beyond the reach of the British and to buy the American friendship by selling the region to the United States. So for $15 million, this vast area passed into the possession of the Republic. Jefferson stretched the Constitution until it cracked and buying it. That was a quote right there. For no clause authorized the purchase of foreign territory, and he acted without congressional assent, which kind of goes against his his thought process, I guess, a little bit. You think so? Because he was more for states' rights. Yeah. But but big yeah. government. He he made decisions right there. But anyway, as a result, the United States in 1803 obtained more than a million square miles with it, and with it, the port of New Orleans, um, built right you know on the where the Mississippi runs into the Gulf of Mexico. Below sea level. Below sea level, <laughs> yeah. The country had gained a sweep of rich plains that within 80 years would become one of the world's greatest granaries. Now, we also had control of the whole central river system of the continent. So within a few years, boats filled all the western streams, taking immigrants to settle on the land and bringing furs and grains and cured meats and a hundred other products back to the market. So as the end of his first term approached, Jefferson continued to enjoy widespread popularity because Louisiana was a great prize. The country was prosperous. The president had tried really hard to please everybody and his reelection was certain. And so his next term, which started in 1805, Jefferson made his second extraordinary use of federal authority in attempting to maintain American neutrality during the ever colossal struggle between Great Britain and France. Both forces had set up blockades and then struck heavy blows at American commerce. The British acted to cut off the rich carrying trade of American vessels of products of the French West Indies and by proclamation declared blockaded the coast of Europe from Brest to the Elbe River. The French ordered the seizure of any American ship which submitted to British touch or touched at a British, British search or touched at a British port. So the British said... You're not allowed to come through if you have stuff from the French. The French said you're not allowed to come through if you have stuff from the British. And the war soon reached a point where no American craft could trade with the broad region controlled by France without being liable to seizure by the British. And no one could trade with Britain without danger from France. So under these conditions, commerce was pretty much crippled. And then another grievance aroused American feeling against Britain to win the war, the British were building up their navy to a point at which it had more than 700 warships manned by nearly 150,000 sailors and marines. Now, this kept Britain safe. It protected its commerce and preserved its communications with its colonies. 
But the men of the British fleet were really poorly paid, poorly fed, poorly handled, so it was impossible to obtain crews by free enlistment. So a lot of sailors deserted and found refuge on the nicer and safer American vessels. In those circumstances, British officers regarded as essential the right of searching American ships and taking off British subjects. So when every sailor who spoke English had been a British subject, impressment seldom involved error. But now, after the establishment of the United States as an independent nation, the case was different. It was humiliating for American vessels to lay under the guns of a British cruiser while a lieutenant and a party of Marines lined up the crew and examined them. And plus, a lot of British officers were charged with being arrogant and unfair, and they unreasonably pressured bona fide American citizens by hundreds. And ultimately, it was alleged by the thousands. Well, Jefferson persuaded Congress to pass the Embargo Act, a law completely banning foreign commerce. The, the effects of that were disastrous. On one hand, the shipping interests were almost ruined by the measure, and discontent rose high in New, New England and New York. Then the agricultural interests found that they too were suffering because of this, because the prices tumbled when the southern and the western farmers could not get their supplies to port, and, and they, they couldn't get them out. In a single year, American exports fell to one-fifth of their form, former volume, but the hope that the embargo would starve Great Britain, Britain into a change of policy, it just didn't work. It failed. As the grumbling at home increased, Jefferson turned to a milder measure which conciliated domestic shipping interest. Substituted for the embargo was a non-intercourse law which permitted commerce with all countries except Britain or France and their dependencies and paved the way for negotiations by authorizing the president to suspend the operation of the law against either of these upon the withdrawal of its restrictions upon American trade. Now, I, this sounds like a lot, but this is all important because these are the struggles of the new country. Yeah. In 1810, Napoleon officially announced that he had abandoned, abandoned his attempt in spite of the fact that he continued to maintain them, but the United States believed him and thereafter limited non-intercourse to Great Britain. Jefferson finished his second presidential term and James Madison took office in 1809. Relations with Great Britain grew worse, and the two countries drifted rapidly towards war. The president laid before Congress a detailed report showing 6,057 instances in which the British had overwhelmed American citizens within three years. In addition, northwestern settlers had suffered from attacks by Indians which they believed had been encouraged by British agents in Canada. Remember, those British forts were still out there. In 1812, war was declared on Britain. Wow. Who could have thought all this, starting, starting a nation, could be so difficult? And we still, I mean, it's still an experiment. Yeah. You I know, guess it was, it's never going, we're always trying to be a more perfect nation, but we're never going to be a perfect nation. Yeah. I guess those folks out there in uh, Seattle, Chaz or Chop or whatever they call it, <laughs> hadn't fully thought out their plan. It's, when a, little, they did it's this. a little tricky. Yeah, our Constitution has survived many tests. Many new countries have patterned their Constitution after the United States Constitution. It truly is an amazing document. I, I guess I want to wrap up this part of the episode by saying that the United States is not perfect. We know that. Many things in our history have been wrong and they've been ugly. But in order to form that more perfect union, 
we're making corrections and we try to make things right. It just usually doesn't happen as fast as most people want it to happen. Right. It's a slow, slow process because people are people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there so, you have it. The birth of a nation. Yeah. Hey, but before we close out, let's mention that currently there are 27 amendments to the United States Constitution, mm -hmm. but this includes the 18th Amendment, which was Prohibition, and the 21st, which repealed, <laughs> which repealed Prohibition. So really, they kind of cancel each other out, so there's really only like 25. So <laughs> this episode has gone way over an hour, but Sorry. we just wanted to... There wasn't enough to do it in two hours. yeah. And, and we owe you and we, guys, and we for couldn't being, shut it off. Yeah, in, we, in an hour, we do owe you for being a little bit late on episodes lately. Yeah. So here you go. Here's some bonus content. Yeah, hopefully, so. it wasn't super boring. No, hopefully not. But we're going to try to get the next episode out in four days because we have to give people time to listen to this episode. Yeah, but we're not going to wait till Thursday. And we have been really wanting to do an interview with with someone live in the studio, yeah. but just because of. The, the, the situation, yeah. we've not been able to do that. So hopefully we, here in a couple of weeks, we might be able to do that. We're hoping to have an interview. We just don't know who it's going to be yet, but we're, yeah. we're working on it. All right, um, Kim. So, all right. Uh, let's see. You can find us on the Facebook and the Instagram at An Hour of Your Life. You can find us on the Gmail at alosthour at gmail.com. I just broke a little thing off my computer. And you can find us on Twitter at alosthour. Um... Write to us. Tell us anything that you want to tell us about the American Revolution that you thought was interesting or that you thought was boring or, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to listen to your show again because this is super dull. I promise you next week is going to be a fun show. I'm but, really excited. But we wanted to do this because of Independence Day coming yeah, up. Yeah, you guys need to know this stuff. They probably do. I didn't know a lot of it. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> so. Especially the post-revolution. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. to it. All righty. So, from our new studios <laughs> in Sugar Creek Township. Thank you for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include a really great website called American History from Revolution to Reconstruction and Beyond. Um, I'm going to actually post a link to this on our Facebook page because I think it's got some really great information. We also had the National Archives and, of course, the National United States Constitution itself. Happy Fourth of July, everybody. Man, I'm tired. <laughs>